The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Jason Rosamond. He's the chairman and founder of New Life Forest Restoration. It's a lumber manufacturer with sawmills in Arizona, and they're actually working closely with the U.S. Forest Service on a zero waste initiative, which we're going to find out all about. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So let's find out all about what's going on in Arizona. So your mission is to protect Arizona from catastrophic wildfires. How do you plan on doing this? And uh, tell us a little bit about your your mission with keeping the forests healthy. Sure. Essentially, the, the forests of Arizona um, are under the stewardship of, of the U.S. government and the U.S. Forest Service. The vast majority of the forests are. Uh, and the Forest Service has created a program called the Four Forest Restoration Initiative, which is designed to restore forests to their more natural state. They've, they've become overgrown through a series of, of incidents over time. They've become overgrown with significant understory. And that understory, if it catches on fire, creates a ladder effect where the fire starts down low you know, in small brush, and then it moves up into medium-sized trees and eventually large trees, and it reaches the crown and creates something called a crown fire, uh, which is incredibly dangerous. It's hard to control. It's hard to put out. Uh, and so our job to restore the forest are to uh, remove some of the understory, leaving the larger trees behind to, to thrive, um, but without that, you know, ever-present risk of, of catastrophic wildfire. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of stuff on the bottom um, that can really burn. And so my understanding, and you can tell me if this is correct, that if you have a lot of big giant trees and it is cleared out on the bottom, that you don't really get these forest fires because there's not a lot to light up the bottom, which means the top is never going to light up and the bark is thick enough on those big trees that that's kind of how it works. And then you don't get these big fires. That is that kind of right? That's, that's, that's right. The simplest way of thinking about it is, is the larger trees, the branches don't start, you don't see branches on a tree until it's about 40% higher than the base of the tree. So there's no branches on the bottom for a fire mm -hmm. to catch hold of. And so when the fire hits the base of a tree, which is, you know, just thick with bark, it, it doesn't, it just, you know, might, might scorch it, but it won't catch it on fire. So once you remove the understory, you, you, you significantly reduce the risk of having a big wildfire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I actually grew up doing this. So I grew up on a 50-acre woodlot, and my father estimates that he probably tripled the wood cordage on that 50-acre plot while harvesting it the whole time for wood. He heated our family home for, I think, nearly 40 years. And so I've seen my whole life sustainable forestry 
practices going on. And he he was kind of aware of that is, you know, you want to take some of the dead stuff away and some of that littler stuff and some of the dead stuff. But of course, you want to leave some of the dead stuff because they make good wildlife homes. And so there's this really cool mix that you can do with selective forestry. And so I'm thinking that that is is your process, right? You're, is this called selective? Because I guess it is, right? That you're selecting a certain type, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a prescription that's put out by the Forest Service where they use silviculture to identify exactly which of the uh, smaller trees should be removed, you know, what, what the canopy cover needs to be, are there diseased trees, so some overstory needs to be removed. So they use a, a very sophisticated scientific process to you know, analyze the entire basal area and come up with, with you know, an end plan, and we then follow that prescription. So if they say, you know, remove all the trees that are not marked with the big red X, and that's literally what happens, then that's what we do. We go and remove all the trees and brush and, and um, all the branches uh, and take them all out of the, out of the forest. Yeah. So you have these tree markers that go in first. So it's like a process, right? So they go in and mark the trees based on all of these criteria. Correct. Yeah. So, so that's kind of like how thinning works, I guess. And then you're, you're working with four different national forests in Arizona. Is that right? That's right. It's the four forest restoration initiative. So it's Coconino, Tonto, Apache, Sitgreaves, and Kaibab Forest, national forests. So it's so cool because, you know, way up here in Canada, I've been to Arizona. I've, I've talked about it on the show before that I've kiked the Grand Canyon, but I don't really associate forest when I think of Arizona. I guess you've probably heard this before, right? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 got a a very diverse environment. So in in obviously, you know, in the, the low level areas in the valley, it's desert and extremely hot conditions. And then as you you rise up towards Flagstaff or Payson, you literally just drive uphill for two hours. You know from the valley to get to Phoenix, I mean, to get to Flagstaff. And as you, you start getting higher and higher in elevation, the trees start to grow and suddenly you've got these massive ponderosa pine forests. And in fact, the largest contiguous ponderosa pine forest in the United States is, is found in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. I never would have thought that. That's so interesting. And uh, so we talk about restoring these forests, but wouldn't a natural process of the forest be to have all this little shrubbery and like these little trees growing and kind of make a mess underneath? So how, no, how is that like not no. natural? Yeah, no. So, 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 so normally what happens before we got here, you know, and, and started messing around with the forest, what would happen is there would be say a lightning strike and there would be a, a small forest fire and it would just clear out all the shrubs and, 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 um, understory. There wouldn't be any medium sized trees. Right. And so they couldn't catch up to the branches on the, the, the larger trees and they were just wiping that out. And actually the heat from those little fires is what triggers seeding. And so the, the trees would then, you know, let off their seeds and, and that's how you get regeneration. Um, but what we did is we started putting out those little tiny forest fires. And so that there were no fires going through and clearing through the, the, the small brush and allowing those small brush to become medium-sized trees. And that's, again, where you get that ladder effect. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of like meddling. And I've, I've heard too, like in, in California and in British Columbia, that when you don't have the forest fires, so that when humans are actively putting them out to protect homes and towns, that 
I guess that's why, because you get this middle growth that can ladder it up to the canopy. So I always knew that I just didn't really put the ladder, the ladder explanation into effect. So uh, now if you're listening and you're talking about forest fires, um, if you didn't know that now, that's a another interesting point to to talk about. Um, forestry is so important in the world. And, you know, we see down in the Amazon that a lot of it is being cleared for farmland. I've been down there. I've walked through the burns. Um, the jungles like in Borneo are really sad where those orangutans are like punching the the bulldozers and stuff like it's so sad. I don't know if it was a bulldozer, some sort of construction equipment. Um, and then even in British Columbia, I don't know if you've heard about this, Jason, but in uh, the Ferry Creek area on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, they're protesting. I think they're still going actually right now. And it's because they're logging this ancient old growth. Have you heard about those at all? I haven't heard. I, of course, I've heard many stories about old growth and interfering with old growth, but not that particular story. Yeah, it's it's quite sad to me because I know that trees can communicate to each other, like the massive trees can send these things through the microbial um, areas underneath the soil to help out the smaller trees and so on, like they kind of communicate in this weird way with each other. And so I just, I think clear cuts are quite sad to me. And I think that, you know, selective is so much better. So I like that I can talk to you from a sawmill because I do support the forestry industry. Like wood is an amazing product and there is a good way of doing it with selective uh, process, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, it's sustainable forestry. So what we're trying to do is to, of course, right now restore the forest to their natural state, which requires removing, you know, vast amounts of, of the kind of medium and small trees um, but even going forward, the forests continue to grow and they will become overgrown again if we don't sustainably manage them. And so the idea is that sustainability, you know, things like clear cutting, those all need to be things of the past um, and messing around with old growth, you know, shouldn't be done. Um, you know, if there's an old tree that's diseased, you know, that's a different yeah. story, right? So, you know, we have to be very careful. We don't want to say don't cut any big trees. Well, sometimes you have to let the younger trees regenerate if some of the older trees, you know, have have defects or um, would otherwise cause problems. Yeah. And if they're kind of on their way out anyway, we have a an oak that's nearly 200 years old and it's mostly dead. And so, you know, we're, we haven't cut it yet, but we're thinking like if we cut it, we can probably still get a lot of wood out of it. But if we just leave it there, it's dead anyway. And then we don't get the wood because <laughs> it's going to rot. Yeah, right. right. So, but it's like so sad because it's so big and huge, but there are all these other oaks in the same oak grove and, you know, one, one is going to take over the, the giant kind of. That's right. That's right. They all need a chance to grow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, um, let's talk about your, your zero waste initiative. And I'm assuming that's, that refers to using all the products that you're clearing out. Is that right? That's right. So, so, you know, we make every effort. So we, if there's a, if there's a tree that's more than three feet high and more than an inch thick, we have to remove it. It's not really a tree, is it? But our job is, is to remove everything. Um, and we want to try to make use of everything. And so we will make wood chips, for example, for, um, gardens, you know, and, and work with a bagging company to bag those and color those and people can use it for mulch. Uh, so there's a vast array of products we make other than, of course, you know, typical lumber products. 
um, where we try to use the smallest portions of, of everything we take out of the forest and put some use to it. Yeah, and uh, wood chips are really good for animal bedding as well because I use some for um, around around my house for different animals. So that's another use that I'm sure people are uh, are using that for. Absolutely, yeah, animal bedding, um, and they can be either bagged or sold in bulk. Uh, you know, depending on where, who who your customer is. Um, they're also we can make pellets out of it. So for wood fire stoves, so you know home pellets and also industrial pellets. Um, there's just so many different applications. If you, if you think about all the products that are on the market that are made out of wood, um, you can basically find a way to use all the, all the components you're taking out of the forest. The only thing you can't really use are pine needles. So um, it's very hard to find a use for those. I heard some of them are for, from white pine, at least, are good for anti- blood clotting <laughs> for tea but don't don't take my medical <laughs> advice at all but you can if you're, <laughs> if you're i haven't in. heard that one but we'll put that on the list to look at <laughs> I, I only heard from white pine so i don't know about uh the other ones i was just surprised because yeah you think pine needles what on earth are they good for you know but um and so what is engineered wood is that like um sprayed mm. sprayed wood or something no, so so the cost of forest, and I'm sorry, this is going to be a, a long-winded answer, so my apologies, but the cost of forest restoration is higher than a typical harvesting exercise because we're removing branches and tops of trees and understory and uh, you know making t- timber stand improvements by removing all these small components. That's actually an, an expensive exercise, and so. Part of that is, okay, we have restoration grade timber is what we call it, that we're removing, which is very low grade. And so the engineered wood products, what that does is it takes low grade timber and it cuts the the lumber out that we make from that into small pieces. And during that cutting process, it removes any of the defects like knots or other blemishes, glue the pieces back together. And it makes a high grade product. So you take something that you might you know, a low grade uh, piece of lumber that you might sell for $300, you cut out 12% of it, which are defects, glue it back together, and you then have something that sells for $2,000. And this is a way that we can actually pay for the restoration work we do um, by taking the timber that we're pulling out and upgrading its value. Oh, okay. I've never heard of that either. That's pretty interesting because yeah, some of the knots and things can be quite problematic, right? Um, if yep. you're trying to get good lumber. So, and, and do you, so can you get regular lumber as well? Because you're saying anything over three feet tall. So I imagine you still would get some, you know, maybe some two by fours and, and stuff, or is that the right kind of wood? I'm not yeah, sure. So we, I mean, we don't make two by fours because we, we primarily have ponderosa pine, which is an appearance grade lumber, but yes, we do have dimensions, okay. um, uh, that we pull out of it like one by six or one by eight. Um, and all of the lumber that we start with for the engineer plant is, you know, like a one by six or one by eight. It's just, it's very naughty wood because it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's, it's lower grade. You're not taking out the good trees, right? You're, you're leaving those behind to grow and flourish. You're taking out, you know, disease trees, blemish trees, smaller trees um, that have more knot structure. And so what we said is, hey, let's, let's, let's find a way of actually uh, making this pay for itself so it doesn't have to be subsidized by government. And the way we've done that is through this engineered wood plant. Yeah, I would imagine if something's growing underneath the canopy that, I mean, depending on where the light's hitting, but yeah, maybe it would kind of get, you know, it would twist and turn if it has to try to find the light. Whereas if something just grows in a 
open field, you know, it can kind of grow. Or no, I guess that's not true either because I tried to plant an endangered butternut species and and I was told to put it in between some trees, like with a adequate space, but that would actually keep it straight. So yeah, so so what happens is is you know the, the younger trees, you've got a lot of branches that are at the base of the tree because it's just growing. Mm-hmm. So that's what causes a knot is the branch coming out of the side of the tree. And eventually, you know, yeah. as the tree grows, the, the branches are higher up. And so when you cut a larger tree, you've got a big base at the bottom, which is clear because it doesn't have any branches on it. Yeah. Well, we don't have very many of those. Everything we're cutting is smaller that has branches everywhere. So we have knots everywhere. And that degrades the value of, of the lumber because it's not as structurally sound. And it's also not as pleasing to the eye when you've got all these black marks all over the place. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, because those logs are like pretty valuable, right, with the the bigger trees. So uh, you mentioned something, though, that it it does take a lot of money to go and do this. So I think that that's the main reason why people clear cut is because you just go and wipe it all down, you know, and I would imagine it's expensive to use all their heavy equipment that they're they're using to clear cut. But but it's a lot of manual labor to go out in the forest with a chainsaw or with any of this other equipment and use it by hand and have to get the logs out. So when I was younger, we had a horse and my dad would hook up a log or something and like skid it out to the truck. And that actually did the least amount of damage to the forest because you could, you know, you don't have to cut a road to get into the tree you're cutting down. You can, you know, horses are very maneuverable. Um, so I would imagine that, yeah, it is a lot of work. So is it, are you hiring a lot of people? Does this create a lot of jobs? Is it, is it hard work for people? Do they like it? Like, how is that aspect of, of this project? Yeah. So, so we still use machinery, heavy duty machinery. It's just that we're, we, we, we don't cut down all the trees. We go cut one and then go cut somewhere up one somewhere else, et cetera. Right. So we move the equipment around. It's much more difficult. It takes a lot longer to do, uh, but it's still all done by a machine. And we use, like you were saying, we use skid trails, uh, the skid trails we design in advance to have the least amount of input on the forest. We get them approved by the forest service. Once we close out the work areas that we work in, you know, we, we try to erase any visibility of where that we were actually there. Right. And so it does take a lot of effort much more than, if you were doing something as onerous as, or, or, or as, as awful as um, clear cutting, it takes much more work and, and therefore is much more expensive. But yeah, we yeah. have lots of staff. There's lots of jobs. Um, you know, we're, we're hiring another probably 200 people over the next year. Um, wow. As we continue to grow and expand, we've got a new super mill that we're building uh, next door to our engineered wood plant. And that will be live. Um, and we've got to hire a lot of people for that and really help us with our mission. Good. That's great. I think that jobs are really good uh, when we're, we're creating them and, you know, technology is kind of taking some of them away. And so it's good to be doing this kind of stuff and then protect the forest from forest fires and do selective logging so that, or sorry, selective forestry, because it's not, not really logs unless they're, they're diseased or something. Right. Um, so this, this is really great. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So how did you get into forestry and what's your background? Wow. Um, so I lived in London for 20 years and, um, was actually, went to business school there and was working, uh, for a large, uh, multinational IT company. Um, and, 
uh, retired from there in 2008 and was looking for, for what the next goal would be and decided that I wanted to get into sustainable development um, to try to make the world a better place and prove that you can actually do things um, with an economic return that actually improve the environment and help communities. Uh, and um, I was actually introduced to this project. I was looking at doing some power plant work and I was introduced to this project by someone who was working on a, a potential power plant solution um, using, uh, which would have used, you know, residual waste from your harvesting activities to actually gasify and create electricity from, from the residual products. And I decided to take on the project. Uh, and that was back in 2013. And it's been just slowly, steadily building up the, the, the business and footprint that we have here in Arizona ever since. So that's very interesting. Uh, and you don't have, you never picked up the accent at all, <laughs> I don't think, uh, from, from living over there. Um, so I just have a question about that, though, because I worry about like biomass, right? Is that is that what it was? Biomass. Uh, so that's one of the residual products, yeah, that we have. Yeah. Out Forest. So I think that it would be great if we are taking the stuff that you're you're taking with the with new life forest restoration. But I always worry, like, what if people just go and and clear cut or you know take down a forest or something to to supply those power plants? Like, is there a risk of that happening, or is there a lot of regulation in that part of the? Yeah, uh, not in Arizona. There isn't. Uh, there's a lot of regulations. Good. Yeah. So so. In Arizona, everything is regulated by, you know, the NEPA approval process and all the, the full force restoration activities are governed by that very strict, stringent process. Our job is to work with the Forest Service and identify with them the areas that they would like us to restore and get to work. You, people can't just come in and, and clear cut national force, right? You know, no, that's not going to happen. Good, because we have a problem with that in Canada. Unfortunately, there's a lot of it. So it's good to hear. You know, I always thought that you guys had some really good uh, national park kind of things going on because I did a lot of kayaking around there and I was pretty impressed with, you know, the rangers are always there <laughs> making sure you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> Whereas Canada's a bit more wild and you know, there's a lot more kind of bad stuff, I think, that goes on in Canada. Like you see people dumping trash and, you know, camping all over the place and clear cutting. And um, I've been like I've I've been in the home of like the owner of a, a major logging company in B.C. And he's like, meh, trees are weeds. They'll grow back. And, and that was sort of his explanation for clear cutting. And, you know, he had all this money and he had a helicopter and. I don't know. It just seemed like not the greatest thing. So it is nice to hear that you guys have some more regulations down there. And I think it's good for Canada to know that your forests do seem to be managed quite well, uh, in my opinion, anyway. So um, so we do have a few more minutes. Was there anything else that you would like to talk about, about, uh, about New Life? I think the, the only thing I would add is that, you know, we're, we're trying to come up with a blueprint of how to do sustainable forest restoration to prevent catastrophic wildfire that can be used in lots of different places. And, like California? <laughs> yeah, like California, Oregon, um, even Vancouver, right? The Vancouver area or, or British Columbia. I mean, the, the, there's lots of things that 
we've learned over the last few years about what it takes to successfully, profitably, sustainably complete forest restoration activities. And, um, you know, once we finish building this next mill, I think we'll have all the pieces in place. Um, and we'd like to share that with the world. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, this podcast is because hopefully people can learn from what we've done and, and, and replicate it. Yeah, that's great because uh, we actually had a giant fire in Lillooet. And if you're listening and you've ever been to the Lillooet area, so it's north of Whistler. So if you go to Vancouver and you keep on going, it actually turns into a desert. And I've noticed a lot of Canadians don't know that we have a desert, but it's full of cactuses and it's definitely a desert. Uh, But there was a very, very bad fire. And I think it was last spring, like in 2021. And it really burned down most of the town and it was so fast. And so I don't know what happened there. And I don't know if this would have helped. Um, I don't know too much about it, but it like fires are just absolutely tragic because they can they can do so much damage and leave people without power if they they still have their homes right so um, it it is a good thing to do this forestry practice and Michael Schellenberger who we had on the show as well I don't know if you've heard of him Jason but he wrote Apocalypse Never and. I follow him on social media and he talks a lot about the poor forestry management and how California really kind of needs to get on board with managing um, the the fires. And a lot of the news, like the major news outlets will just be like, oh, it's climate change. Fires are getting worse because of climate change. And, and he's saying, well, no, it's because we're not managing the forests, basically. And it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with climate change, you know? So I found that kind of, uh, kind of an interesting, yeah, I, think, I think there's two, two, two points. One, so climate change, because the forests are not managed properly, climate change is allowed to have an impact on it. So as it gets hotter, obviously there's a higher risk of drought and, and extensive forest fires. Mm-hmm. But if the forests were managed properly in the first place, then the risk would be mitigated because there wouldn't be the understory to catch on fire and create these crown fires. So it's, it's kind of both. Now that they are overgrown, climate change does have a big impact. If they weren't overgrown, then we wouldn't even have to raise climate change in, in the same sentence. And humans, right? Like humans are just everywhere. So the more humans are going yeah. into the forest or building into the forest or or developing into there, you know, developing homes and whatever, then you get the cigarette, you know, that, that falls sure. on the ground and, and the or campfire. Or the spark from a piece of equipment or, or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that that is also very dangerous as well, right? So that's yeah. right. Um, well, this is pretty cool. So I don't know too much about, about Arizona, but I learned today that there are four big forests there. And uh, ponderosa pines, I've definitely heard about those. They sound like beautiful trees. Are there other major kinds of trees there as well? Like I'm assuming they're all kind of uh, coniferous trees, right? Because of the desert? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Uh, there, I mean, there are, you know, there is Doug fir here and some white pine, but for the most part, it is ponderosa pine. Vast majority is ponderosa pine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. We have a totally different forest system where I live now above the Great Lakes. And yeah, it's very, very different than than going out to the West Coast, that's for sure. And the the forestry, you know, the log, the logging trucks are a lot different. Um, <laughs> they're quite tiny compared to out there. And, you know, uh, if you are listening, I encourage you to look up um, the American chestnut tree and what happened to them on the East Coast, if you're if you're here as well. So when when Jason, you're talking about 
these trees and how they get so huge and then they don't really have a fire risk and actually you know the fire comes in and it it sprouts or whatever it does to the pine cones to make them grow into the smaller ones you know um the american chestnut if you look at the old pictures from the 1800s before they kind of got wiped out they're massive 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 trees they're huge they're just giant and there were reports of people walking through the chestnuts and um, they were like three feet thick on the ground. Uh, there was just so many. So that kind of gives me a good idea of what an ancient healthy forest looks like. And it kind of ties into what you're saying about these bigger trees and not having that ladder effect that can bring the fire up to the top, right? Absolutely. In fact, uh, when we talk about forest restoration and restoring to their more natural state, what they've done is they've taken photographs from the 1800s and said, this is what the forest used to look like. This is what it needs to be returned to. History is so important. Indeed. Yeah, I'll have to Google some of the, the Ponderosa pine old photos and see. And and yeah, if you're listening, check out that those old American chestnut forests because it's just crazy how, how cool they were. And they, they're really lumpy as well. Like they, they, they make the ground really lumpy which is you'll see if you see in the pictures, but there's like these big dips and grooves. So it's not just like a flat area. It's very up and down and uh, it really changes the landscape when you get those old trees in there. Um, so yeah, this has been really cool, Jason. So thank you for, you know, working in IT and, and being across the pond and then deciding that you're going to go on another mission and make the world a more sustainable place because uh, it sounds like this this project is definitely going to do that. So very cool. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks for telling me there's a desert up in Canada. I'm going to have to check it out someday. Yeah, there is. It's really cool. I saw a, a cougar on a river trip up there and there's a really good rafting company. If you're into that, that goes on the Thompson River. It's called Cumsheen Rafting. It's owned by a really nice family and it's a cool place to stay if you're ever traveling through the desert up to Kamloops. Um, and it's Fantastic. a really nice river. Yeah, with big rapids. So be ready if, you go, if you're going, <laughs> if you're going up there. Awesome. That was Jason Rosamond. He is the chairman and founder of New Life Forest Restoration. It's a lumber manufacturer with sawmills in Arizona. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.